Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you once again from downtown Memphis, sitting high on the fourth Chickasaw Bluff. This will be episode 25, the last of the Indian market hunters, and I think you'll enjoy it. But before we do that, let me just say a eulogy for Trey Crawford. I think most of you might know Trey Crawford, but for those who don't, I'd like to eulogize him. He died, I think, on April the 13th. I just found out about it about a week ago. But I met Trey at our hunting club called Wild Wings down near Charleston, Mississippi, about 1986. He hunted down there off and on for the next four hunting seasons. He was a guest of Kanista Hodges. And for those who don't know Kanista Hodges, he's a former U.S. Senator from Arkansas. He filled a two-year term for, I think it was, Senator Fulbright, who had died. And he brought Trey down there to do some calling for some of our members and guests. But Trey came down, and I didn't know him when he first came down. We were first day down there. We were hunting. I didn't hadn't met him yet. And he was hunting in a different area than I was. But I was hunting right next to him, actually. We were in one of our Wild Wings 360-acre field planted in rice. And, of course, it had been harvested and, and uh, threshed down and pumped up. And we had our decoys out, and it was the first day of the season. And Trey and Canista uh, and two other their friends were in what was called the middle middle pit, which we called the Owens pit. I and my two sons and a guest was up in the north pit, which we call the Senator pit. It was named after Senator Hodges, which I've already mentioned. And we were doing pretty good as as Trey was. Trey was actually doing better than I was. And they ended up being in the clubhouse before we did. Well, maybe 15 or 20 minutes or so. But anyway, I, Kanista introduced me to them at the clubhouse there at lunchtime. And we got to talking, chit-chatting a little bit and got to know Trey and he got to know me. And then we had dinner or supper that night and chit-chatting again with Trey. And he says, you know, uh, Wayne, he says, you, you did pretty dead gum good in that middle pit. He says, how long have you been calling? I said, I don't know, Trey. 20 years, I don't know, I was 30, I think 20 years, 30 years older than Trey at that time. And I said, you know, Trey, usually uh, if we go out tomorrow and we happen to end up nearby each other, we'll just, you and I will have a contest. And first one back in the club, we'll decide as the winner. So the next day we we drew, we drew from a little set of pins. I think there's 10 pins and they were numbered one through 10. You flip the coin and you either called high or low. If it's high, obviously, you started out 15. If it's low, you started out one. But we saw, it so happened that we ended up basically in the same situation. He was in the middle pit on that 360 acres called the Owen pit, and I was up in the senator's pit just like the, the day before. And we got to call, and it was a, one of those beautiful, clear days and just absolutely gorgeous. And I'm calling, and Trey is really doing good starting out, and I decided I'd better switch my calls to more of a high ball, see if I couldn't swing some call ducks off of him a little bit. Got to doing a little high ball calling and plus some uh, come and get it calling along with that. And sure enough, I was pulling ducks off of him and we ended up getting our limit and going back to the clubhouse. We ended up being first. And he said, man, that was something. He said, I don't know if I've ever quite been uh, beat like that, but let me just say, you know, Sounds like I'm bragging on myself a little bit, but let me just say the next time after that, it wasn't no contest. Trey was was the winner every time, and I hunted with Trey some there at the club, and 
I'm going to tell you, Trey would be – everybody else would be sitting on the bench in the in the pit there, and Trey would be his shoulders and his head above his chest. He'd be all showing above the pit. And it didn't make any difference. He, he was calling them in. It didn't matter. They're coming in no, no matter what. He was some kind of guy. And then I'd like to – I like that's a story I'd like to relate to you, but I've got, I think, two or three other ones I want to relate to Trey. We uh, ended up going to uh, – Trey ended up guiding a lot in the United States and then Canada, and he'd go to Canada before the season really started in the United States. So we went up there once in, I think it was Alberta, Canista and I, to hunt with Trey. And he, he brought us up there. He wasn't going to charge us guiding fees just to come on up there. We got up there at the airport uh, in Edmiston about on time, and there was no tray. So another hour goes by, no tray. So we give him a call, and he's out goofing around uh, about 80 miles where we were hunting at from Edmiston. And he finally comes, and he gets us two hours late. And he had been with a group of hunters that morning, and they'd left. That was the end of their hunting tour. And he was going to take us the next morning. I feel he hadn't. We found out he even really scouted, going to take us goose hunting. So we we get there at that field right at daylight. It's the harvested wheat field. And Kanista and I, it's light enough where we could see the ground as we're walking out through the field. It's going to be dry field hunting. And Kanista and I kept saying, Kanista, I says, I don't see any, any poop, goose poop here in the field at all. You know, and we're walking from the roadway where we were hit the car about 150 yards out of the field, and we kept seeing no poop, goose poop. And I said, this ain't good, Kanista. <laughs> so by that time, it was about 30 minutes after uh, the sun was breaking to the high horizon, so you could see the horizon pretty well. So I say, Trey, this ain't going to get it, man. We ain't going to kill any ducks here. If they had been in here the day before, the last two days, or even one day, there'd be poop out in this field. So... And I happened to start scouting around the skyline and horizon, horizon, and I'm looking over towards the, the southeast where the sun is rising. And I guess I see above the tree line, you know, I'm going to just say a few things here in the military. They tested our eyesight. I was in the Air Force, and I had 2010 in my left eye and 2012 in my right eye. That means what you can see at 10 feet, I can see at 20 feet, or what you can see at 12 feet. I can see it 20 feet. So I had excellent eyesight. So anyway, I was looking over the horizon toward, you know, off to the right of the sunrise, just a little bit. It had broken the horizon. And I could see ducks working and going down into a field, and they just were swarming into this field. And I said, "There's the, there they are. Let's go. So we got in that, and the land over there was set up in section land. So we drove a mile from that field down to the next section line, and then went west a little bit, probably half a mile to where we found where the ducks were working. We go out there and sit up in a dry field. And this is duck hunting now because there's ducks. So we set out about oh, 30 de duck decoys and we're laying on the ground, not really camouflaged, but you know, we brushed ourselves up. This was a cornfield, harvested cornfield. So we could do pretty good. And it didn't take us any time for four of us to get our limit of ducks mostly mallards, and, you you, you know, their color really hadn't changed, so it was hard to tell a, a hen from a, a drake. But anyway, we did real well. The next day we goose hunted, and he scouted that at the previous afternoon. So we did very well for two more days of goose hunting, came on home. 
Another one I'd like to, I guess, just close out with Trey, eulogizing him. We were at the Wild Wings Club. I guess it was about 1986 or 7, maybe, for the duck season. And we're sitting around the clubhouse after a hunt. And he says, I'm going to, Trey says, I'm going to go to uh, Sudgard tomorrow and I'm uh, going to visit Rickenbach, Butch, and going to get some uh, Western House McCarta duck calls from him. And Butch was making some Westinghouse McCarter calls at that time. And I said, yeah, go ahead and get me one of them. And my buddy Alfred, who was hunting with me, said, get me one. So he was going to get us two. And sure enough, he got us two. I'm sitting here looking at both of those Western House McCarter calls. And, they, and of course, when you get them, they're sort of ivory color. But they, they with time, they turn into a a light yellow-brown color, absolutely gorgeous calls that I'm looking at. And so I, and then I ended up getting uh, my friend's Alfred's call, so I've got two of them. That's where I said I got two. I got two calls of them, and they're absolutely gorgeous calls. So i just like to give a little closeout with Trey. He grew up uh, in Newport in northeast Arkansas, and that's where Kanista Hodges was from. He got an unusual early start in duck hunting and calling competition and a family immersed in everything ducks. He started duck hunting when he was five years old and entered his first calling contest in 1969 when he was 10 years old. That was the year he won the Jackson County Junior Duck Calling Championship. On the same day, his father won the Northeast Arkansas Regional Open and his brother won the Jackson County Senior Division. That's quite a call in families, almost like the Chick Majors family. On his 17th birthday in 1976, Trey was in Stuttgart going up against the best callers in the world. Competing the night before, he won the Chick Major contest hosted by former world champion and call-in legend. Then on his birthday, he started the day by winning the Arkansas State Championship and followed up that night by winning the World's Championship. This is at age 17, and that's 76, 1976. As he said, it was a heck of a birthday. Trey was on the World's Championship duck calling contest circuit for four decades. He won his first Arkansas State and World Championship in 1976. He would go on to win two more state titles in 1979 and 1982, and two more world titles in 1986 and 1993. His last win was the Champion of Champions title in 2000. His success spanned a four decades. He is the only person ever to do that and might be the only person to ever do it. Trey enthusiasm, passion, and commitment to craft made him one of the best duck callers of all times, and in my words, probably the best. Trey was also a true mentor to many, and he always had a passion for helping youth get into duck calling and hunting. So, Trey, someday I hope to see you across the great divide in that place we call heaven, and may God bless you and your family during this time. Now, Waterfowlers, we're going to do episode 25. It's called The Last Indian Market Hunters. And during their history and mouse research over some 30, more than 30 years, on market hunting, you just don't find much about hunting at all, about ducks, 
being market the Indians being market hunters. So this is an unusual episode. And I quite when I came across this, I found it pretty outstanding and wanted to get it across to all the, the you wildfowlers out there. So here we go. The Indians was the first hunter of this land, a skilled hunter by stern necessity. He was a true market hunter. He made a business of pursuing game, living upon what nature made most abundant. His concerns were outcomes as he had to feed his family. So for a Paiute in the Great Basin, hunting and fishing was the business of his life and waterfowl was considered an esteemed food source, gathering it with all the irregularity of a corn crop. In the interior of the Great Basin in Nevada lies these rivers, Walker, Humboldt, Carson, Reese, and Lakes, Walker, Humboldt, Carson, Surprise, Pyramid, all being the marshy, shrinking remnants of the huge Ice Age Lake Ahantane, an important stopover area for waterfowl. It eventually became known as the Pacific Flyway, frequented by canvasbacks, redheads, ringbill, widgeons, pintails, mallards, teal, sandhill cranes, swans, and other ducks and shorebirds. Prior to Euro-American settlement, northern Paiute Indian families lived a seasonal, semi-nomadic lifestyle. Families came together in large camps during the winter season near food supplies. Prior to Euro-American contact, the northern Paiutes occupied a very large territory that included parts of what are now California, Oregon, Utah, and Nevada. The northern Paiutes remained relatively isolated until Euro-Americans, trappers, and traders began their explorations and ex exploitations of the Great Basin areas in the 1820s. If marking hunting were, as it has been portrayed, simply done by the white man, this story could never have been written. Perhaps we can simply state that Native American market hunted, but no one wrote about it. Nevertheless, we come to the last of the Native American market hunters that were centered around the Humboldt and Carson sinks of Nevada. The two vast sinks of the Humboldt and Carson River drainage system, the marshy remnants of the Ice Age Lake Hontane, with neither having a natural outlet, served as life-sustaining resources for food and material for prehistoric man and the later Native Americans. Over the last 12,000 years, generations of prehistoric peoples occupied the Humboldt region basin region, along with occupying caves located on the lower slopes of the Humboldt mountain range, which ensured exploitation of waterfowl and other game when the extensive wetland served as a resource site for waterfowl from 2000 B.C. to about 1840 A.D. Remember, this Lovelock area, this Humboldt area, is where the Lovelock caves were and where they found those 2,000-year-old decoys. Continuing on, excavation of the Lucklock Cave exposed a cattail-woven basket. Inside was 11 near-perfect preserved canvasback decoys, the most ancient decoys in the world. They were carbon dated to be about 2,000 years old, used for hunting forays, but stored in the cave in between expeditions. Made of woven tule reeds by ancient tule eater Indians, early ancestors of modern-day northern Paiutes, 
Ten were canvas backs painted with black suit on their back, chest, and bill, and red orca on their necks, and nine were adorned with white feathers. And even at this early date, canvas backs were highly sought after for a meal. Archaeologists say that tule eaters employed decoys when hunting alone while shooting them with bow and a special arrow until the muzzleloader came along. Two other interesting methods were used in hunting canvasbacks and redheads at the two sinks. Once canvasbacks in large numbers were spotted in deep water sloughs, the hunter took off his clothing, placed a helmet made of moss over his head, and attached a belt to his body. He waded into the water among the ducks, casually pulled them under the water, crushed their skulls, broke their legs, and placed them under his belt. He departed the slough with his belt full of ducks. It is surprising how easily the hunter fooled the ducks by submerging his body and leaving on his moss-covered head above the surface of the water. The ducks were at perfect ease since the moss-covered head matched the surrounding plant life and there was no indication that a man was in their midst. For the redheads, they were captured in shallow sloughs while they were feeding at night. A hemp net was set two feet above the water across a small neck of a slough. An Indian behind the net patted the water vigorously with his hands and mimicked his call, while another Indian beyond the redheads frightened them by shouting. The birds made a deed line for the patting of the water as the, that Indian advanced, so he advanced, the ducks advanced towards the net with that other Indian calling. Flying low, many consequently became entangled in the net. Hence, they were kept busy during an entire night in crushing the skulls of the redhead. Fast forward now to the 19th century when the northern Paiutes market hunting with decoys and muzzle loaders. During the gold rush, gold seekers heading for California traveled by the Humboldt River, Humboldt Lake, and Humboldt Sink area. It was recorded in 1849. After leaving Lovelock Meadows, the early gold rushers came to Humboldt and Toulon Lakes and the Humboldt Sink area, which was a haven for ducks, geese, and other waterfowl and shorebirds. One of the groups elaborated, The ponds of the sink were covered with all kinds of wildfowl, geese, ducks, curlews, snipes, sandhill cranes, swans, etc., etc. While we were encamped after dark, one of our parties fired a gun heavily loaded in the direction of Humboldt Lake and Humboldt Lake was nothing more than a widening of the Humboldt River. So he loaded in the direction of the Humboldt Lake, which was only some 100 yards from them, and the noise made by the wings of the frightened birds was like thunder. And the Indian said we could hear it continuing up the valley as flock after flock take the alarm sounding like the rumbling of thunder. Discovery in the late 1850s of the famed Comstock Lodge that was for gold and silver attracted thousands of additional homesteaders to Nevada. Mining, farming, and ranching activities spread rapidly and relentlessly throughout the state in the 1860s, greatly expanding the white population boom. Therefore, the demand for food in the Nevada Great Basin area increased enough that market hunters could make some money. The Paiutes, who by law could hunt all year round, would fill a major void for waterfowl highly needed for local markets, as reported by numerous newspapers. So from this point forward, there'd be a lot of newspaper reporting 
I'll go through them. I'll start with the Virginia Daily Union in Virginia, Virginia, Nevada. The Virginia Daily Union, March 2, 1864, reported a wagon for the Carson River loaded with wild ducks and fish was in town yesterday and the load went off like hotcakes. The Carson City Daily Appeal reported April the 5th, 1867, that wild ducks, swans, etc. are plenty in this market. Some of them are reported as being brought from the Humboldt country. They are in excellent condition and are sold at a low price by the Indians. The Winnemucha Argent reported September the 24th, 1868, Duck shooting is one of the big atoms on the Humboldt River now. Shotguns are all day popping during daylight and sometimes later. Ducks are unusually numerous on the big and little Humboldt rivers. The game is worth the powder, too. The Paiutes shoot large number of the birds. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad across northern Nevada in 1869 brought more homesteaders and only increased the demand for game and waterfowl which could only be supplied by the Indians. In a common complaint over the Indians being allowed to hunt waterfowl for their own use out of season, on August the 17th, 1872, now during this time the season started the 1st of September, so they're shooting really out of season, but they have the right to. So the Elko Independent on August 17th, 1872 reported that the Indians are making sad havoc among the young ducks along the Humboldt River. Every day, strings of these delicious birds can be seen in the hands of itinerant Paiutes, who dispose of them readily among our citizens. While year-round hunting was allowed for the Indians, sale of harvested wildlife of whites out of season was not. But the Paiutes paid no attention to the game laws as the territorial enterprise of Virginia City reported October the 17th, 1873, that several Paiute Indians arrived in this city yesterday loaded down with waterfowl from Humboldt Lake. The geese, mallards, and teal they brought in were all very fine and fat. They all found ready cells for the game. So you can see the Paiutes paid no attention to <laughs> that they couldn't sell to the whites. The Humboldt Register of Renamuka noted on the same day that Humboldt Lake is literally alive with game. Ducks, Geese, swans, pelicans, cranes, and all such fowls abound in great plenties. There is also snipes, curlews, and the like in abundance. Noting the abundance of Sandhill cranes, the Battle Mountain Messenger newspaper reported March 1879 on the cause of a delayed stagecoach. Uncle John Gibbons came in an hour late yesterday and on being questioned gave as a reason the presence of a flock of Sandhill Cranes, which entirely blocked the road and prevented the passage of the stage. One week later, the Gold Hill News of Story County reported on the Humboldt. This morning, we saw a pair of fat brants. Now, let me stop here for a brant. I've mentioned this in several of my episodes. The brant can mean a lot of things. Obviously, on the coast, the east of the west coast, it's a brant, okay? But in the interior, Brant could refer even to a snow goose, but most likely it's referring to a small goose. The big goose they called the Canadian goose, and the smaller geese, they tend, a lot of times they just call it the Brant. 
So let me start over with the Gold Hill News story report. That, that was in 1879 in March. And here it goes. This morning we saw a pair of fat brants, which were brought in from the Humboldt River by a party of Indians. The wings, when extended, measured seven feet. So this is obviously a giant Canada goose, measured seven feet from tip to tip. The fowls weighed 20 pounds. Now that's a biggie. Goes on with the quote from the Gold Hill News. A Chinese laundryman purchased them for $3. The Indians report that there is an abundance of ducks on the Humboldt. Showing the ingenuity of the whites to obtain waterfowl out of season, not to mention a newly acquired interest in the pursuit of science, and science in this case is in quotation, as waterfowl captured, that's in quotation, for scientific purposes were exempted from the state games laws. The silver state of Winnemucca reported on one ploy, stating that Henry Hinkey, while up in Paradise Valley, succeeded in capturing some ducks killed by an Indian for scientific purposes, quote, quote, last Saturday. They were served up scientifically, quote, quote, which means, i.e., cooked by John Morris at the Central, that's a hotel, and all were thankful that the game laws did not interfere with science. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Silver State recorded November the 3rd, 1875, on the marking conditions. Waterfowls, such as duck and geese, are plenty along the river at present. Yesterday, we noticed a hunter, that's an Indian hunter, returning from an hour's hunt down the river loaded with ducks of the mallard species. Some industrious Paiutes engage in the business and dispose of the spoils of the chase to the pale faces at the rate of six bits per pair for ducks. Now, for you younger qualifiers, six bits is 75 cents. Ten days later, on November the 13th, 1875, the Reese River Revere reported prices at Austin, Nevada. An Indian was peddling ducks on Main Street this morning and fixed his price for the birds at $2. A pair of wild ducks are very nice, but are too much of a luxury at a dollar apiece, and they are small at that. The Nevada Territorial Legislator during this time allowed Indians to hunt waterfowl year-round for their own consumption, but not to sell while prohibiting others from hunting waterfowl between April the 1st and August the 30th. I've mentioned this earlier. However, the August 20th, 1877 issue of Reveal reported, Last Saturday evening, Marshal Brennan captured an Indian with a pair of young ducks in his possession, which he had shot on the river. The Indians are exempted from the provision of the game law, but the officer confiscated the ducks and locked the Indian up for half an hour, just as a warning against exposing game for sale out of season and to discourage them from killing it. The intent of the law is that Indians may kill game at any time for their own use, but not to sell, the warden said. Eight days later, the Territorial Enterprise, Virginia City, reported on waterfowling at Humboldt Lake. Humboldt Sam, a Paiute brave, yesterday arrived from the sink of the Humboldt or Humboldt Lake. He says there are a great number of Paiutes at the lake at the present time. Geese, ducks, and snipes are very abundant. The Indians are having a high old time at a killing frenzy, feasting on the ducks and geese. Sam's mission to this city is to ascertain how soon our dealers will begin to purchase game. 
He says the young ducks are now as large as the old ones, are very fine eating, and he is anxious to bring in and sell them. Sam will return and bring in a lot of game in a few days. And that was Paiute Sam. Speaking of shorebirds, the Territorial Enterprise noted six weeks later on October the 12th, 1877, that several Paiute hunters came in yesterday morning from Humboldt Lake with game, ducks, and snipe. One Indian had a great number of robin snipes, and Robert snipes are red knots, shorebirds, which birds he reports as being very plentiful at the lake. As they are found in flocks, they are more sought after by the Indian pot hunters than other snipes, which must generally be shot singularly. On December the 30th, 1877, the Silver State of Winnemucca reported that the Paiutes are carrying on quite a business in the sales of swans. These graceful-looking fowls with plumage white as snow measure over five feet from tip to tip. They are quite numerous at the sink of the Sunboat River at this season of the year and are shot by the Indians, who dispose of them at from 75 cents to $1.50 each. For white brethren market hunters, there were Paiutes, usually the chief, who had members of his tribe hunting for the market. The November 30, 1878 issue of the Silver State reported that Captain John, chief of the Lovelock Big Meadows Paiutes, is an enterprising Indian. At present, he is engaged in the waterfowl business. The lake at Humboldt Sea is now literally alive with ducks, geese, swans, pelicans, etc., and Captain John has several Indians engaged in shooting them. He disposes of the fowl at several towns along the Central Pacific Railroad and in reality has a monopoly of the business as no white man can compete with him in consequence of the latter having to pay fare and freight over the road while John can ride free on the platform of a passenger car and carry his sacks of game free. He is now extending his business to Eureka where he says he can dispose of big ducks for four bits apiece and get a dollar each for geese and swans. He expects to do a lively business while the lake is open and to make semi-weekly trips to Eureka with bags of game. Captains John's marketing business operated from Mono Lake across the border of Nevada in California. It extended all the way to the Humboldt area in Nevada. He also marketed feathers to the homesteaders for making pillows and mattresses while skins with the feathers still attached were cut into small strips for making blankets and sold to the homesteaders. For October 1879, the Indians complained that there was no waterfowl at the sink. A newspaper reported that, usually at this season of the year, the Indians kill lots of waterfowl and bring loads of them here, and here is Battle Mountain, to the market. However, by January 1880, the Silver State reported that game is abundant here and ducks are as thick as grasshoppers in summertime in Nebraska. Reporting from the newspaper, I saw at Warm Springs the other day at least 25 acres of them as thick as they could stand. Then on March the 9th, 1880, it was reported by the Silver State that ducks are getting plenty along the river and industrious Paiutes bag a good many of them, which they dispose of to the white at the rate of four bits each for a mallard and two bits for inferior kinds. 
On November the 24th, 1880, the Silver State reported that Natchez, the Paiute chief, says Humboldt Lake is about dry, and where years ago waterfowl of all kinds were plenty, there are no geese, no pelicans, no ducks, and nothing that an Indian could live upon. One year later, how quickly things changed, as the same newspaper, Silver State, reported August the 3rd, 1881, now the lake has spread out to its old size and is larger than at any previous time in six years. The next month, Landers Free Press of Battle Mountain newspaper, on September the 23rd, 1881, reported that the Indians are bringing in large quantities of ducks and fish. Moreover, the Silver State, October the 20th, 1881, noted that the Indians are doing a lively business nowadays shooting ducks and geese, for which they find a ready market here and at other places along the railroad. Mallards and canvasbacks sell for four bits a pair and five geese for as much each. The red men from near the sink of Humboldt sometimes bring swans to town, for which they ask 75 cents apiece, but ducks constitute their principal stock in trade, as they are very plenty along the river. On November the 7th, 1881, in noting the Indians' hunting ground, the bounty of the area at that time, and the extensiveness of the Indians' operations, the same newspaper reported that the Indians are now living on the fat of the land in the western part of Humboldt County. Chief Natchez informs us that the sink of Humboldt River is alive with ducks, geese, swans, and other edible waterfowl. The Indians have 60 tule boats on different parts of the lake seldom failing to kill a half-dozen ducks or two or three geese with one shot. The Territorial Enterprise on July the 24th, 1883, reported that Humboldt Lake is quite high and the Indians are gathering bushels of ducks and gull eggs. Eggs are always gathered from spring to summer and were highly sought after. In 1887, the Game Act came into force that restricted the hunting of waterfowl and other birds. Despite exemption to the act which allowed the Paiutes to continue hunting for food, the application of these exemptions were left to the discretion of fish and game wardens who continually arrested Paiute hunters. As Captain John said, who was a Paiute, two days ago I be for a long time on my belly took good shots at ducks. Then I bang, bang, and many birds fall dead in water. Then a hand grabs me by the collar from behind and pulls me up quick. A man with big star on coat says, What are you doing there, red devil? Don't you know you know can shoot ducks now? Captain John responded, You mean white men own all ducks and animals too, not just our land? The warden says, I can put you in jail for doing this. Government tells the Indians when he can shoot birds and catch fish. You no more do this until white men tells you it's all right. This was the end for Captain John. Nevertheless, some of his hunters continued to market hunt. Due to drought and the conversion of wetlands to pastures and farmlands, the Silver State reported November the 24th, 1888, that usually at this season of the year there were plenty of ducks and geese along the Humboldt and hunters killed wagon loads of them, and the Indians carried on a profitable trade, supplying the market with canvasbacks and mallards. This year, the river is almost dry and waterfowl returning from the north do not stop in this vicinity in consequence of the scarcity of water and neither whites nor Paiutes 
kill many ducks. As was typical for the Humboldt, the conditions changed frequently, as reported by the Central Nevadan on April the 3rd, 1890. Thousands of ducks may be seen on the lake, that's Humboldt Lake, formed by the overflow of the Humboldt River. The Central Nevadan of Battle Mountain reported in 1891. Eight years ago, that had been 1883, wild game was abundant on the Humboldt River and wild ducks in large numbers inhabited the sloughs. The building of the narrow-gauge railroad south, which brought to Battle Mountain crack shots with nothing to do but hunt, resulted in killing or driving away the game. Now we are talking about white market hunters, as the railroad brought in white market hunters from many states, but mainly California. Therefore, Captain John had problems competing with these crack shots, and that also led to his leaving the market hunting business. The white market hunters, taking advantage of the abundant waterfowl in the Great Basin, came in and took over the market hunting business from the Paiutes. On November the 5th, 1897, the Gold Creek News reported that a number of California hunters are shooting ducks on Humboldt Lake below Lovelock for the San Francisco market. Ducks are numerous and they are de being slaughtered by the wholesale. The white hunters do the shooting from boats which they bought from California. The expense of outfitting being heavy, they must find business quite profitable. They will likely follow it for months as the ducks make the lake their winter quarters. This news article was followed shortly by a November 16, 1897 Silver State article, which commented on the wholesale harvesting of ducks. The white hunters who are killing ducks for the market on the lake at Granite Point are making a barrel of money. They ship two tons of dressed ducks per week to the San Francisco market, where the fowls bring $3.75 to $5 per dozen. There are five of the hunters, all from California, and they average about nine dozen ducks each per day. Some 540 ducks kill per day. In addition, in 1899, the Silver State reported on the formation of a gun club out of Wadsworth, specifically for serious hunting waterfowl on the Humboldt Sink. The Canvasback Gun Club was organized at Wadsworth, and a clubhouse was built at Brown Station, on the shore of Humboldt Lake. They fitted it out with boats and all the necessary appliances for the slaughter of the feather game of which a lake was a famous hunting ground. Thus, 1899 brought an end to the Paiute market hunting. Now, folks, this this is really something historical-wise. You just don't find this kind of stuff, history on the Indians and the, how they participated in this. There was another area up in the Minnesota and Iowa area where the Indians hunted like this for a while. And actually, sort of during this same period of time, and they sort of ended for them up there in 1900. But the history up there is very limited. You can't get that much about it. Certainly not like this. And I don't want to leave the, the podcast listeners out there thinking that this is all my research. Uh, most all of this newspaper research that I just done, whoever did it just did it outstanding job and it was written up uh, under the Nevada Water Basin Information and Chronological Series from the Division of Waterfowl Planning. So that's where most of this uh, newspaper reporting came from and it did, whoever did it just did an outstanding job researching all these newspapers and I can't tell you how many newspapers I've searched but whoever did this did an outstanding job. 
that ends this episode 25, and it was extremely interesting to me, and I hope it is to you. I think for episode 26, we'll do box shooting of the Brant up in Massachusetts on Montmoy Island. That should be interesting. It's a unique way of uh, shooting, and Brant is such an unusual waterfowl that I think everybody will enjoy it. And as you know, I usually end up with some kind of reflection, or try to anyway. So this is going to be a poem, and I hope it brings back some reflection and memories. It's called Allum Wings. Silhouetted against the sky, the great gay geese go flitting by. On pinions of majestic power, southward they fly, hour by hour. The wildfowler steadily in his blind, the decoys call loudly to their kind. Cupping wings, magnificent and graceful, they glide towards earth in circles faithful. The geese, given vent to loud, harsh calls, soar into the sky when their leader falls. Swiftly they fade into the heavens blue, filling the air with honks anew. So that ends episode 25, and I hope you'll view my website, waterfowling.net. As I've always say, it has a lot of, on my blog site, it has a lot of old stories, historical waterfowling stories, so get on there and go at my blog and look at it. A lot of them I haven't even done on these podcasts yet. So those are future stories you might hear. And look at my books. And if you see any that you're interested in, give me an email through my website. I'm working right now on volume two of historic waterfowling images. And I hope to have that thing out in about a month. I have um, to get the proof sometime this week and go over it. And then it'll go to the printer's. So usually it takes five to six weeks after you go to the printer to get it. So keep in touch with you on that. We already have 150 pre-ordered. Uh, 300 have been ordered, so half of them have been pre-ordered. So we look forward to receiving those. If you're interested in that, give me an email on that. In the meantime, I leave you and God bless.